This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. The very relevant legacy of Florence Nightingale, founder of Modern Nursing, on the 200th anniversary of her birth. And how the pandemic is accelerating innovations in cancer care. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Nonprofit and charitable groups are reporting a significant drop in volunteers since the start of the pandemic. It's because thousands of seniors across the country who would normally be volunteering their time are staying at home to protect themselves from the virus. Volunteer Canada says about 2.3 million of the 12.7 million Canadians who volunteer every year are 65 years old or older. And the nonprofits aren't the only ones hurting, as volunteering gives seniors a sense of belonging and purpose. Compensation will be coming soon to a generation of Zoomers born with birth defects because of the drug thalidomide. A ruling this week by a federal court justice locks in payments and eligibility rules and sets up an appeal process for people who are still denied compensation under a previous settlement between the government and thalidomide victims. Thalidomide was approved in Canada to treat morning sickness in pregnant women for less than a year in the early 1960s, but it was available unofficially for several years, both before and after that. After something a little more calming, a little bit more relaxing and a little bit better. Here is Bridge Over Troubled Water by Simon and Garfunkel. Retirees in a number of U.S. states have become volunteer DJs for a new online radio hour known as Radio Recliner. It's a private radio station run by resident DJs living at senior living communities across the country. The 60-minute show began airing last month and has since taken off with seniors in assisted living facilities in Georgia, Alabama, and other states jumping at the chance to be a DJ. about the quarantine 15, but Italy's Farmers Association has come up with a more accurate number for the excess weight many Italians have packed on during the two months of COVID-19 lockdown. The organization reports people consumed almost 20% more food than usual, resulting in an average weight gain of about four pounds. Let's keep Singapore healthy. Please stand at least one meter apart. Thank you. That's the voice of a robot dog named Spot patrolling physical distance efforts at a Singapore park. Developed by Boston Dynamics, the yellow and black canine robot is part of a trial. Spot has been deployed over three kilometers in the park for the next two weeks, and the question is, will it be seen as a soft-spoken reminder 
or the voice of Big Brother. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week, we marked International Nurses Day, which is celebrated annually on Florence Nightingale's birthday. It's the 200th anniversary of the birth of the founder of modern nursing, and COVID-19 is making her legacy more relevant than ever. I talked with Professor Emerita Lynn McDonald. She's written extensively about Florence Nightingale and is co-founder of the Nightingale Society. It's an extraordinary coincidence because it's the bicentenary of Nightingale's birth, and uh, she's so terribly relevant now uh, in the pandemic. Uh, she was an expert on infection control during the Crimean War, which was 1854 to 56. The Crimean War hospitals had very high death rates, not from wounds, but from disease, infectious diseases. And Nightingale and teams afterwards, the Sanitary Commission, etc. I'm not saying she did it alone. They analyzed the data, what went wrong, and how did the high death rates come down. They were brought down. They were brought down dramatically. And she wanted to learn the lessons so that there would not be a recurrence of those high death rates. And that's what we need to do now. There may well be a second wave or more, and uh, different countries and different states have taken different approaches, you know, from very thorough lockdowns to much more casual to a lot of testing and tracking and so on. Different methods have been used. Which ones are more successful? This is the kind of thing that uh, she was a pioneer of doing. She's considered to be the founder of modern nursing, does she? Sure. Uh, She founded the first nursing school, which was at St. Thomas's Hospital, where famously Boris Johnson, the prime minister, was treated for COVID-19. So it's the first nursing school in the world. But even more broadly, it's really the founding of the profession. Because in the UK, nurses, so-called nurses, uh, were not trained. Uh, most of them were quite disreputable. They drank on the job. They took opiates on the job. They were known to take bribes for services. Now, nuns in Roman Catholic religious orders, of course, were decent and didn't do those things, although Nightingale reported the nuns didn't take bribes, but their servants did. But it wasn't a profession. You know, somebody became a nun, and that was part of their work. And Nightingale made nursing a profession. It actually had very good pay then and prospects for promotion at a time when women weren't allowed into any profession, not medicine, not law, not engineering, not anything, and couldn't even go to university. How did she end up on the battlefields then before she founded the profession? Well, no, no, you see, she was asked to go, uh, not, not because she had a team of nurses or anything of that sort, but she actually knew the Secretary of State, at war, who was the junior war minister, and they had met in Rome. Nightingale would have liked to have been a nurse much earlier in her life, but her family was very wealthy and respectable, and it was not the thing to do. Nurses had the status of a kitchen maid, and a lady certainly couldn't do that, but she was allowed to travel, and so she traveled with family friends as chaperones and had quite a bit of time in Rome, and there there she met Sidney Herbert and his wife, Elizabeth Herbert. Uh, Elizabeth Herbert was on the board of an establishment for gentlewomen during um, illness, and her first nursing job was a superintendent of that very small uh, hospital. However, it was still she probably still had more experience than anyone else because there was no nursing school, and there really weren't good nurses around. But it's just the coincidence of her being known by the number two man at the war office. 
Wow, that's interesting. One of her quotes is, I attribute my success to this. I never gave or took an excuse. Well, yeah, there, there are so many wonderful things to <laughs> quote her on. Uh, I like the one that, uh, particularly like the one that Dr. Bonnie Hart, uh, Henry in um, uh, British Columbia said on uh, May the 12th. She said, let's remember Nightingale. First of all, do the sick no harm. Uh, uh, you know, she was she was very conscientious. She knew that you can do the wrong thing. She knew you had to be careful about what you do and evaluate it. And uh, that's I, I see her in a more positive light than that uh, quotation that uh, you gave. Okay, a couple of years ago, there was kind of a, a controversy around Florence Nightingale's legacy, and people were saying she didn't deserve all that credit. She didn't bring down the death rates herself. The great uh, decline in death rates from the Crimean War hospitals was from the Sanitary Commission. She recruited the leaders of the Sanitary Commission to work with her after the war. Their job was done at the end of the war, uh, and uh, she uh, really formed a team with them to make sure that the death rates didn't recur. So you don't want to exaggerate what happened in the Crimean War, but learning the lessons after the war was very significant. And I just don't see how, uh, I don't think her legacy is appreciated enough in those respects. What do you think that we have to take from her these days? Well, she believed in uh, evidence-based health care. You should start new programs small and evaluate them and uh, find out what works and what doesn't work. Now, in this pandemic, you can't just wait and be leisurely about it, but I would hope that there would be very good analysis as as soon as possible. And with decent data, she would be very suspicious of the data that get that uh, gets reported now uh, because, you know, what, what's an unidentified COVID-19 case, if you don't do much testing, you won't have many of them, you know, so you'd have to be very astute in how you do that analysis. Uh, Just out of curiosity, did she ever marry? No, she didn't. Uh, Apparently, she had a number of offers. Uh, She felt a call to service, called by God, and incidentally, while her nursing, she took to be a mission from God. She always wanted her nursing school to be secular. It should be open to people of any faith and none at all. But uh, I think her call really filled her life, and she continue to work at that. And uh, although she did have offers. Lynn McDonald, thank you so much for that. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. That was former Member of Parliament and Professor Emerita Lynn McDonald. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Imagine the anxiety of going through cancer during the pandemic. It has delayed or changed treatment plans for some patients and also prevented them from bringing along loved ones for support. But it has also brought some welcome innovations. I reached Dr. Sandy Sadev, a medical oncologist at the Ottawa Hospital Cancer Centre. What's changed in the clinic, the way you run the clinic? I know, for instance, that now patients usually bring someone with them to a treatment, and now, for the most part, they can't. So many things have changed. I mean, that that emotional support, having someone come along, especially for the consultations when you're talking about the results of a test, maybe, or you know, where it could be good or bad news, or the first time we meet a patient to lay out the groundwork for how we treat their cancer, 
It's so important to have that, and that has been a great loss for patients, even when they get their first chemotherapy, not having someone just to be there with them. Uh, we've covered a lot of that ground by having um, telemedicine approaches, having loved ones or friends on speakerphone during our discussions, um, sometimes having a second consultation by phone to reinforce things or go over things again with the patient. If we have discussions with patients, sometimes our nurse We'll do a pre-call the day before to gather background and provide sort of a groundwork of information, a follow-up call the day after. So people in our teams have made tremendous efforts to make up for those gaps, um, but it is certainly a challenge, even in terms of our scheduling, you know, making sure there's adequate distance in our chemo units between patients, uh, helping them now have masks and be screened when they come in. Uh, it's amazing how many changes we managed to accomplish just in the first week or two of uh, implementing these. So many of our consultations now are being done virtually, you know, by telephone or by very sophisticated telemedicine platforms. Uh, we don't always feel comfortable using the commercial kind of consumer level Zoom uh, products or that kind of thing or FaceTime because of confidentiality issues. But there are, uh, there's actually a Zoom platform that's uh, designed for professional purposes with better privacy encoding. Uh, the Ontario Telemedicine Network has for a few years let us directly contact patients on their iPhone, iPad, or home computer and do uh, video chats with them directly for a while. So we're really leveraging those technologies now to help try to maintain a bit of uh, humanity in our contact and uh, facial, facial you know, eye contact when we can. Uh, patients love it. In fact, I think even when things hopefully settle with COVID, there will probably be a demand to keep that kind of visit option for patients uh, for perhaps less thorough assessments. Frankly, for a lot of patients, you know, who are not feeling that well in, in the middle of their treatment, it it can be a big undertaking to, you know, get to the hospital and wait for hours generally to see someone. So I'm imagining that patients like this. They love it. And, you know, I, I think the hard thing is recognizing when and where there's a role for an in-person assessment. Like the first time you meet a patient, we like to do an examination, develop a bond with the patient and their family. Uh, sometimes we do have to periodically reassess the patient with our hands to measure a tumor, to see how well it's doing, for example, on treatment, get blood tests. Uh, there are some patients now who are so frightened or just don't like coming in that they're deferring important visits to come in and that, you know, um, deferral may compromise their health care. So we, we do have a bit of negotiation and patients most often are very accepting of that. On the other hand, though, many of our discussions are really about talking about things, asking about side effects, uh, discussing scan results, and they can be done very well virtually. And I think that will be a new normal in the future. What percentage of your visits are now virtual, would you say? About 80%. And I think it varies wow. a lot from clinician to clinician, depending on the type of practice, the type of disease they have, you know, how important the physical might be. But the vast majority now have gone virtual. You mentioned that when it comes to cancer treatment, anxiety is a big part of it. You have a lot of people whose surgeries have been delayed. Their cancer surgeries have been delayed. Uh, how do you handle that aspect of things? Everything can be delayed. Um, I think we've done a very good job, and this is at the Cancer Care Ontario level and at the global level. The British National Health Service has guidelines. The um, surgical oncology international groups have guidelines to really help prioritize what kind of things can safely be delayed. I always put myself in the patient's shoes, though, even if I have a slow tumor 
where medically there really is minimal risk of a delay, you know, I'd be very anxious about waiting. So I feel for patients having to wait, uh, but we do have a very good triage system of, you know, what can safely be delayed. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? I think just the grat- my, my gratitude for the patient community, uh, how, again, how gracious they've been. They put a lot of trust and faith in the nurses, pharmacists, doctors treating them. And my immense gratitude for the, uh, the hard work of all the healthcare teams at the front line. Uh, it's, it's, been, um, it's been really an eye-opener. I'm really proud to work in Canada and Ontario during this time, and I'm, I'm really hopeful it'll be behind us soon. Dr. Sandy Sadev, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was medical oncologist Dr. Sandy Sadev. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today, and be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Weekend Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.